for the reading of God's Word from the 17th chapter of Acts. We'll be reading starting in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Hear now God's Word. Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were, who were there spent their time in nothing else but to hear and tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of all of this to all by raising him from the dead." And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. I want to begin by noting that I owe a debt of gratitude to my friend and mentor, Dr. Greg Bonson, for teaching me what I am about to pass along to you. Of course, we're not the Apostle Paul. Sometimes we read these stories and we think, well, well that's the Apostle Paul. I, what does that have to do with me? He had unique gifts. He had a special calling. Uh, it is unlikely that many of us will ever be called to speak to large crowds of people, and I know you feel some relief about that. Uh, But each of us is called to to, uh, speak to those that God has placed in our lives, that is, 
placed in front of us, near us. Uh, We are his witnesses. We have the good news of the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and eternal life. How can we not speak up? Now, we've seen already, as Paul was there in Athens by himself, waiting on his companions, and he went out into the marketplace, and he began to look around, and we saw, the Scriptures tell us, Luke tells us what he saw. He saw, in the midst of all this glory, he saw a city full of idols. As a result, he was provoked in his spirit. What he felt was jealousy for the true God. Other gods were getting his glory, and Paul felt a jealousy there. And so what did he do? He spoke in the synagogues and the marketplace to whoever happened to be there. He didn't have a big plan. He wasn't setting out to go speak at the Areopagus. He went out to speak to whoever might be there. And as we see, God's going to open up other doors. Now, the Athenians had specifically asked about the resurrection, but we have no hint that Paul replied when they ask about it. They they overhear him, some of the philosophers, talking about the resurrection, and they ask about it. But we have no hint that Paul replied by examining various alternative theories to the the resurrection. Um, Jesus merely swooned on the cross, or perhaps the disciples stole his body. And then somehow Paul uh, would have, uh, he didn't do this, he didn't counter those kinds of theories with various evidences. Uh, For example, a weak victim of crucifixion could not have moved the stone and liars don't become martyrs. He didn't use those kinds of arguments with them. And then somehow countered those theories again with these various evidences. Uh, So Paul wasn't interested in in concluding that very probably Jesus rose from the dead. Nothing of the sort. Instead, he laid the presuppositional groundwork for having the Athenians accept the authoritative word of God, which was the source of the good news about Christ's resurrection. Therefore, he worked from a presuppositional level, and I'll explain a little bit what we mean by that. Everybody makes assumptions. Everybody has certain things we believe about the world, about ourselves, about God. That's our starting place as we begin to look. Now, whether that will hold up, whether that makes any sense or not, is another question. Paul knew that the Athenians had a certain set of operating assumptions about the world. That is, they had a worldview. Paul had a different set of assumptions or presuppositions that gave him a different worldview. And it was the Athenians' presuppositions and assumptions that needed to be challenged. They were leading to really bad conclusions. And so Paul began by drawing attention to the nature of man as inherently an inherently religious being. In Acts 17.22, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. Of course, now these philosophers have taken him to this place of meeting where philosophers would gather to debate and discuss. And now they're hearing him. And the first thing he has to say, he stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, 
I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Although men usually don't willingly acknowledge it, nevertheless, they are aware of their relation and accountability to the living and true God who created them. They're surrounded by God's creation, for example. In Romans 1, uh, which is a great parallel passage to what Paul is doing here, and of course Paul wrote Romans 1, Paul writes, because that which may, may be known about God is manifest in them. He's talking about all mankind. That which may be known about God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Speaking of every human being. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The evidence is everywhere. Being made in the image of God, there's an inherent awareness of the Creator. They're made in the image of God. Right there is the evidence. But rather than come to terms with God's wrath against their sin, they pervert the truth. That's an uncomfortable truth. They suppress the truth, Paul writes, in unrighteousness. There's an ethical problem. I remember talking to a young man many years ago, really sharp young man, about the faith. He was a professed atheist. And after weeks of going back and forth, he finally said, well, you've answered all my objections. I just don't want to be a Christian. And I said, well, I could have told you that on day one. I'm just waiting for you to figure that out. So I asked him, would you do one more thing? Okay. Would you go home and pray that God would make you want to be a Christian? 24 hours later, he was a Christian. So they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's a rebellious heart. We don't want this God. We don't want a God who's actually all-powerful, who we're accountable to. We want a different God, a God perhaps that we can control or manipulate. We don't want this God. And so Paul says they became uh, ignorant and foolish and exchanged the truth for a lie. Thus, Paul could make this point in Athens by taking an illustration from the Athenian altar that was dedicated to the unknown God. Paul did not attempt to supplement or build on a common foundation of natural theology with the Greek philosophers. He began rather with their own expression of theological inadequacy and defectiveness, and underscored their own professed ignorance. You don't know God. And so Paul notes the basic schizophrenia in unbelieving thought when he describes in the Athenians both an awareness of God, men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious, and an ignorance of God by their altar to the unknown God. The same condition is expounded again in Romans 1, 18-25. Knowing God, the unregenerate nevertheless suppressed the truth and follows a lie instead, thereby gaining a darkened mind. They've gone down a dark path. 
They've rejected the foundation, the one true and living God, and they're looking for any other explanation for life. And so the unbeliever is fully responsible for his mental state, and that is a state of culpable ignorance. They know better. God made it evident to them through the things that have been created, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Again, an illustration Dr. Bonson used to use was uh, uh, people playing water volleyball in a pool, and the ball gets by somebody, and he puts it underneath him and hides it, and everybody's looking for the ball. They didn't see him put it underneath, and he's saying, I don't know where it is, but he's in contact with it constantly. It's underneath him, and if he lets up his balance a little bit, it'll pop up. That's the picture of the unbeliever suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. God? I don't I don't see any evidence of God. It's everywhere. So it is a fundamental fact that all men are religious. It's the inescapable consequence of being made in the image of God. Every even the person who's the most openly hostile to God, the God of the Bible, cannot escape being religious. Even hostility to organized religion or church is is its own religion. Even so-called atheists are very religious. Julian Huxley, an avowed atheist, said that Man functions better if he acts as though God is there. Francis Schaeffer commented on this statement, and he said, These thinkers are saying, in effect, that man can only function as man for an extended period of time if he acts on the assumption that a lie, that the personal God of Christianity is there, is true. You cannot find any deeper despair than this for a sensitive person. And no matter what the unbeliever may profess with his mouth, we can say of him, as Paul did of the Athenians, we can see that you are a very religious person. The evidence of this fact is all around him. God made it evident. The problem is not that God can't be known. But like the Athenians, the unbeliever has failed to find him, even though he is right in front of him. If the great philosophic minds of the Greeks, think of this, and I think that's part of why we have this story of Athens. The great philosophic minds of the Greek failed in their quest to find God. Then why should there be any hope for other unbelievers? J. Gresham Machen, famous Presbyterian minister, of the early uh, 20th century, wrote this. How can we discover whether there is a God at all? I have something rather simple to say about that question at the very start. It is something that seems to me to be rather obvious, and yet it is something that is quite generally ignored. It is simply this, that if we are really to know anything about God, it will probably be because God has chosen to tell it to us. 
Many persons seem to go on a very different assumption. They seem to think that if they are to know anything about God, they must discover God for themselves. That assumption seems to me to be extremely unlikely. What therefore you worship in ignorance, Paul said, this I proclaim to you. You don't know God? I do. Let me tell you about him. God has been pleased, he said, to make himself known. Therefore, what Paul proclaimed to the ancient Athenians 2,000 years ago, we proclaim today. The same message to all people in all times and in all places. So I'd like to set before you uh, five ways that the word of God proclaims the living God. First, God is the creator of the universe. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. This view of the world is very different from that of the philosophers in Athens and is likewise very different from our modern world. According to this system, ours is a world of chance and chaos. Though many may argue that the universe is ruled by such things as laws of nature or the laws of motion and so forth, they cannot escape the fact that in order for there to be any laws at all, there must be a lawgiver. Laws don't create themselves. C.S. Lewis said men became scientific because they expected law in nature and they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. In order for there to be any purpose or reason, there first must be a planner and a rational being. Otherwise, even their laws are the product of what? If there is no God, if there is no lawgiver, what are their laws? They are the product of arbitrary action, and they could change at any moment. What goes up doesn't necessarily have to go down anymore. Yeah, but it does. Yeah, I know. And we know why it does, and they don't. In an effort to remove God, men have dehumanized and devalued themselves as being in the image of God. T.S. Lewis said of modern science that it atomizes and destroys, this is great, it atomizes and destroys every worthwhile thing that it looks at. A loved one becomes proteins and electrical impulses. Music is just vibrations. Responsibility vanishes into causes and effects. If man is nothing but a collection of atoms, every movement of which, including the movements that are alleged to generate thought, he is only the product of material causes. It is absurd to accuse a man of inhumanity for erupting cruelly as it is to accuse a volcano of inhumanity for erupting lava. The unbeliever may try to move God to the back of the bus, but he cannot kick him off 
I think C.S. Lewis was the one who said, every time I thought I got God out of the room, I heard a creak on the staircase. Even two leading scientists, Fred Hoyle and Francis Crick, the discoverer of the discoverers of the DNA molecule, came to this conclusion as they're looking at the complexity and information and intelligence. They said this, Life could not have spontaneously arisen on the earth. Therefore, this is their conclusion, it must have arisen somewhere else in the universe and then been transferred to the earth. This doesn't solve the problem of creation and the creator. It only removes it to the realm of the unknowable. Hence, we are back to the idol of the Athenians, the unknown God. Some things never change. Unbelievers often try to remake God to conform to their own liking, making a God or an idol of their own, from their own imagination, making themselves the creator and him the creature. Again, Romans 1, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. A little God, which they can control and manipulate, who is there at their beck and call. How absurd to suppose that he who made and supervises everything should answer to man. Any attempt to confine and imprison him or to redefine him or remove him from his creation is ludicrous. He is the creator and we are the creatures. He isn't little, we are. Romans 1 tells us that God's wrath hangs over all who suppress the truth of his being the creator. Second, so God the creator is first. Second, God is the sustainer of life, creator of the universe, Acts 17.25. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life and he gives to all life breath and all things. God not only created every man, he sustains them every minute, every nanosecond. If he but withheld his sustaining hand for a moment, we would all be history. Men are utterly dependent upon him for everything, yet men still dare to rebel against him. Like a, another illustration Dr. Bonson used to use uh, is like a man on a, on a bus. Uh, and this actually may have originated with Dr. Van Til, I don't remember. But um, a man on a bus holding a young child, and the child is unhappy, and the child slaps the father's face. That's the picture of creatures. God is sustaining us and holding us, and we're slapping his face. That's... And we couldn't slap his face if he stopped sustaining us. If he just let go, we'd be gone. Unbelievers think that the one who sustains life should himself need to be sustained by them. Does poor God need their help? Does the one who supplies all our needs stand in need of us sustaining and giving him help? 
Any attempt to tame or domesticate God or reduce him to the level of a household pet dependent upon us for food and shelter is a foolish reversal of roles. We depend on him. He doesn't depend on us. Third, this is really important too. Sometimes people, oh well, let's you know, you're you have your religion and I have mine. We all have we're all trying to get to the same place in different ways, right? So what Paul says here, God is the ruler of all nations, the one true God. Acts seventeen twenty six through twenty eight a, and He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. God is not some local deity. Isaiah forty seventeen. All the nations are as nothing before him, They are gathered by him as less than nothing and meaningless. God allows no room for pluralism, principled or otherwise. He is not just the God of the Jews. He is the God of the nations, the God to whom all people will give an account, every last human being. The Ten Commandments, including the first two, are universal in their demand. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. All men are descended from Adam, verse 26, and he made, he made, he made from one. Therefore, all men are sinners, and all men stand in need of his salvation. He determined our time and the boundary of our habitation. We exist by his pleasure. We are because he willed us to be. We live when we do because that was his choice. And we live where we do, by his pleasure. Why? That we might seek him. That perhaps we might grope as a blind man for him. And perhaps we might find him, though he's not far from each of us. Yes, he is the transcendent, mighty God of the universe and of the nations, but he is also the personal God who has the very hairs of our head numbered. He's right here, right now. For in him we live and move and have our being. God is our very environment. We cannot escape him, however someone might try. Hebrews 4.13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Fourth, God is the father of all human beings. Acts 17, 28b through 29, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. So he is the creator of the universe, sustainer of life, and the ruler of nations. This is not, not, not he's not speaking now in a strictly redemptive sense, but in a creative sense. God is the father of all men. He's not the designer 
Uh, he's not only the designer and creator of the universe. He's not only the ruler of the nations. He is the father, the creator of every individual person. And this means he is a personal God who knows you and can be known by you. Not like an object of gold or silver or stone. He's not some distant God uh, veiled in mystery. He's not the product of our thought and our imagination. This means that all idolatry, whether ancient or modern, primitive or sophisticated, whether images are metal or mental, material objects of worship or unworthy concepts of the mind, it's all inexcusable. Men may not reverse the position of themselves in God. So that instead of, that instead of humil- humbly acknowledging that God created and rules them, they presume to imagine that they can create and rule God. And that leads us to the last point, fifth. God is the judge of the world. Well, I don't like that. Yeah, I bet you don't. But it's true. If it's not true, as you hear me say often, then let's just go home. We're with the Athenians. We don't know anything. We have no clue how we got here. We have no clue why we're here. We have no clue where we're going. We'll just go erect our own idol to the unknown God. But if this is true, then everything hinges on this. Acts 17, 30 through 31. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, that is Jesus, whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Therefore, since God's the creator of the universe, the sustainer of life, the ruler of the nations, the father of all human beings, therefore you are culpable before him. He is telling the Athenians that in the past, even though God has revealed himself through the natural order and men suppress the truth in their wickedness, God has overlooked that ignorance and he has every right to bring you into judgment. It is only by his mercy that you have been spared his judgment so far. But now that he has clearly proclaimed to you, that Jesus has clearly been proclaimed to you, he demands that you and all other people repent. Turn around. Come to him. He has the right to demand such allegiance from you. You must bow, little one, before the mighty hand of the living God. For you will soon face the great judgment. And there are three unchangeable facts pertaining to it. First, It will be universal. God will judge the world. The living and the dead, the high and the low, will be included. Nobody will escape. Second, it will be righteous. All your secrets will be revealed. All the witnesses will be brought in. There you will stand, exposed before the righteousness of God's law, without a defense. Third, it will be definite. The day has already been set. 
The judge has already been appointed. And though the date of your appointment has not yet been revealed, the identity of the judge has been revealed. The philosopher and French existentialist Albert Camus once said that death is philosophy's only problem. And the philosophers are still groping in darkness for the answer to that overarching problem. God has committed the judgment to his son. And God has answered the philosopher's only problem. God has given public proof to this to everybody by raising Jesus from the dead. By the resurrection, Jesus was vindicated and declared to be both Lord and judge. And depending on where you stand in him, he will either be your advocate or your judge. This is all part of the background of the gospel. We can't preach the gospel of Jesus without the doctrine of God. And we can't preach the cross without creation. And we can't preach salvation without judgment. Save from what? So, was Paul successful? Note the three responses to Paul's message. Some began to sneer. They they busted out laughing. They mocked such notions. Others said they wanted to hear more. Perhaps they had become curious or they didn't quite understand what he was saying And then some believed. They took to heart what Paul had declared to them. They repented. They believed. They followed. Because such a message demands some kind of a response. Some will maintain their idols. Some will attempt to confine God with their imposed limits. Whereas he is the creator of the universe. Others will try to demonstrate, uh, domesticate God and make him dependent on themselves and Tame him, whereas he is the sustainer of their life. Some will alienate from God and blame him for his distance and silence, whereas he is the ruler of nations and not, not far from any of us. Still others will seek to dethrone him, to demote him to some image of their own imagination, whereas he is their father from whom they derive their being. But here's the good news. Some will repent, some will believe, and follow the true and living God through Jesus Christ, his Son. It's almost a footnote to this amazing story in Athens. I really like it because it's so matter-of-fact. It is a footnote, but it's a critical footnote. Verse 34, however, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of God is powerful to save. Father, we are so grateful that we do not worship an unknown God, but that it has pleased you to bring us the gospel and to reveal yourself to us. You have opened our ears and hearts. You have granted us repentance and given us faith. We, like the Athenians, were dead in trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath, just like them. But you, who are rich in mercy, because of your great love, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. 
and raised us up and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come you might show the exceeding riches of your grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is your gift, and we give you eternal thanks for that gift. In Jesus' name, amen. I've referred to this story before, uh, probably multiple times, but I like it, so I'm going to do it again. Um, economist, uh, Christian economist Dr. Clarence Carson wrote this. He said, some years back I received a call from a young man who asked me to speak to a group of students, and what he wanted me to do was restrict myself to economic matters only, if I would, he said, specifically He wanted me to leave God out of it, though he must have put it more circumspectly than that. I sent my condolences, but declined the invitation. One suspects that the young man supposes that God is like a domestic pet, a cat, say, which one trots out to show to people who like cats. But when guests arrive who are allergic to cats, it's put out of sight until they leave. It's not that way at all. God is not an addendum to economics. He is not scroll work around the edges. Without God, the belief in economics is idolatry. God is my premise and my conclusion. The first words of Genesis put the matter clearly. In the beginning, God... And as the book of Revelation moves to its conclusion, there are these words, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is no God to be trotted out for God fanciers. He is God, the ground of all being. How could I speak and leave God out? As we come to the table today, I call upon each of you to make that kind of commitment to the Lord. That is, that He is central to everything, and that you are not in the least ashamed of that fact. As Peter writes, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. And so may we leave this table today ready to speak with whoever happens to be there. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our Redeemer and our Mediator, without whom we have no standing with you. For his sake alone, we can stand in your presence. We can know the assurance of your pardon and the pleasure of your countenance. As you have instructed us, we now cast all our cares upon you, for you care for us. And now, O Lord, as we go forth from this place, having met with you and having again worshipped in the assembly of your people, we delight and rejoice in your presence. We also pray that your grace will now be evident in us, so that we might speak to those you have placed in our lives. Bless now this day of rest. Feasting and communion, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hear now the benediction from 1 Peter 5, 
Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, because he cares for you. Amen. Amen.